Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Upbeat Live. I'm Veronica Krausis. I'm a composer and I'm a professor over at USC at the Thornton School of Music. Before I introduce our wonderful guest, I have a very important question. How many of you have leftover turkey in your fridge? Just that many? I think some of you are lying. Okay. <laughs> It's my great pleasure to um, introduce this stupendous musician who has been performed internationally and as a, as a soloist with chamber music, orchestras, and was also named Artist of the Year with the International Classic Music Award in 2019. Please welcome the pianist Javier Perianes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs> So welcome to back to, uh, this is your first trip to L.A., to the L.A. Phil, or you've played with them before? This is my fourth time. Fourth time. LA. First time was in 2015, Ravel in G Major, 2017 with Mozart 27, mm -hmm. 2019 with Beethoven 5, and this with Sansan number 5. So we're, so. we're progressing chronologically. Yes, yes. and we are of. making the concertos bigger and bigger. Bigger, bigger. Yeah. oh good. And then, do you know the, what? The orchestration, I think. Do you, do, you, do you know what the next one is? The next, I think, it's this summer, but it, it, it's a bigger also. It's bigger, but it could be that the ball it would be different repertoire. Yes. Oh, we're not allowed to ask. <laughs> no. no okay. <laughs> it's a secret. It's a secret. Okay, great. Well, tonight you are playing the Sanson um, Fifth Piano Concerto. It's nicknamed the Egyptian. So, um, did you get to? How many times have you played this concerto? So many times. First time, it was quite a risky thing because I played it in Paris in France, and I thought, wow, they must know the concerto very well. The National Orchestra of France must have this as some kind of national anthem, like all the Sanson or Debussy or Ravel piano concertos. But you know, it was difficult also for them. I had a lot of fun with the concerto because it is a lot of fun. And that was my first time probably seven, eight years ago, and I have been playing quite regularly since then. This one, the number five, the Egyptian, and the most famous one is number two. That is the most uh, important and most famous, probably because of the great pianist Arthur Rubinstein. He made it very popular. Right, right. And um, so with this Egyptian, why is it called the Egyptian? You know, you can guess. Sanson was a traveler, a guy who enjoyed traveling around the world. And he had a lovely time in Egypt. And he was having a holidays in Luxor. And then he was inspired by all that songs, all that sounds from the Nile ships. Mm -hmm. In this concerto, I would invite you, because it's what I'm doing, to close your eyes. I'm not closing my eyes all the time, sorry. But um, I'm just like a travel, you know. First movement is quite classic. You can listen very classical atmospheres, quite French, quite uh, a lot of refinement, a lot of nuance. And you cannot uh, guess why is this called Egyptian. But in the first chord of the second movement, and the, the first development is quite clear why. There is a lot of Nubian, there's one Nubian beautiful song. There's a lot of uh, rhythms from Egypt, even some Arabic rhythms, mm -hmm. and even some Japanese or Javanese themes. And then the third movement, some musicologists used to say that it is the sound of the engine of the ships in the Nile. Pum, 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 pum. And then this is like a motto perpetua until the end of the concerto. In a very French style, a lot of refinement, but a lot of virtuosity. And Sanson played himself this piano concerto after composing. It was some kind of big goodbye because it was the last piano concerto he wrote. But 
I think it's like a travel. You have the chance to feel um, uh, a lot of different sounds, a lot of different colors and textures, mm -hmm. and it is something that you don't need to think about. I'm explaining why. When you're playing Brahms or Beethoven or something like that, you need to plan, okay, this is the tension, I have to release the tension here, I have to build this um, structure here. There is a structure here, of course, but there is a lot of fun, a lot of colors and a lot of textures, and it's not the same challenge, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a really lovely concerto. Um, you, the conductor this evening is Gustavo Jimeno, who you've worked with many times before. Um, how, has, how has your relationship evolved with the, or rather, how has the music evolved with, through your relationship with him? It's getting worse and worse. Every it is. Time. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's not the right answer. <laughs> oh, no, no. He's fantastic. Curiously, one of the first times we played together was this piano concerto. And in this country, we did it with the Indianapolis Symphony okay. Orchestra. Uh, we have been collaborating since then with so many orchestras in Toronto, in Luxembourg, with different repertoires. And now, after a lot of discussions, a lot of disagreement, we are friends. So okay. <laughs> that's fine. No, no, we have a very good relationship. It's very easy to work with him. Mm -hmm. He's a very, and you will, will see very soon, very elegant conductor, mm -hmm. very easy to work with. He's listening all the time. And it's rare because usually we, the soloists, are complaining all the time because the con conductors uh, are not giving us enough time for the rehearsals. They're making all the time for their symphony, and for us it's like one hour, and that's it. With Gustavo, it's different. He gives you the time you need. Happy, are you happy? Do you need something from us, from me, from the orchestra? Completely happy, then we can leave. So it's very easy to work with him, very talented, very special, and something that I really admire about him, and it makes for me even more special. He's very humble, and the only concern he has is music. Yes. Let's make music. Are you both obsessive about music? I don't think I'm obsessed about music, but you know, yes, we are thinking and breathing about music. It's the only thing that, con that worries me when I have a concert is uh, not to play well, it's just to engage people for this trip, in this case, to the Nile River. Um, but no, it's not a obsession, it's a very aggressive word. I would say it's our passion. Passion is a better one. Okay, That's a, that is a better word. Um, just, we, I know we only have you for 15 minutes, so I'm just checking the time. One of the uh, things that's happening right now in the world is the World Cup. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you... Uh, yes, I am. Yes, you are. Okay, so um, I, I, I'm a little curious because I know on Sunday before your concert, uh, Spain is playing at 11 a.m. With Germany, I know. Are you, are you going to watch the game beforehand or after? It's 11 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky time. Before the concert, probably after the concert. So you don't want anyone to tell you what the score no. is? No, okay. No. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing you're supporting Spain. Yes. Yes, yes, of course. Um, it's interesting to me how the similarities between athletes and musicians. You know, have you ever thought about that or...? or yes, I have heard sometimes from some physiotherapists about talking uh, the musicians about uh, high-level athletes too. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say that when you're getting older, you have to start taking care of yourself because when you feel younger, you can do everything you want. You can travel, you can 
handle all the jet lags in the world. You can travel to Tokyo, you can travel to the States, and everything is fine. But then when you're getting older, you have to start taking care of yourself. You have to start asking you questions about the way you play, if cause you any physical problems or not. And even some colleagues have altered with the years the way they approach to the instrument, not just the piano, also the violin, because they're causing a lot of physical problems. Mm -hmm. But it happens to every single uh, high-level instrumentalist. And I think it's good because it's also part of your evolution, part of your mm -hmm. process. And I think it's beautiful to keep asking you questions about what you're doing every single day. And that, that it's comfortable. When you play, it just looks so easy. I mean, and, and it would be almost like a feather. I, I, it's so impressive and inspiring to hear you play any repertoire. Um, did you have to, at any point in your career, change the way you were playing? Or did any of your teachers sort of attack and say, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this? No, from the very beginning, I had a very good teacher in Spain. I remember him. And I was looking at him when he was teaching us. And his gesture was all the time, can be powerful. But at the same time, he was not employing mm -hmm. a lot of, mm -hmm. not energy is not the word, a lot of, he was not wasting a lot of energy. So. Mm -hmm. It's about avoiding movements or gestures that, that could, could be uh, damaging for your back, for your neck, for your whole body, even for your legs. So the way that we should, uh, I approach the instrument is, I think it's very natural. It's not easy because it's not easy what we are doing, of course. But for me, it has to look easy mm -hmm. for the audience because at the end, uh, what we are doing is so beautiful and it's, it's painful for you, for you be sitting at the audience and be suffering for someone who is doing something there. Oh my God, this is very, oh my God, this is very difficult, poor him, he's suffering. So I don't want to keep that image, so fingers crossed for tonight. So, so we're, <laughs> we're not naming other pianists who look like they're suffering, okay. What about, you know, talk a little bit about um, practicing. When you were younger, how many hours a day did you practice? I have been practicing for 10 hours, for 8 hours, nothing at all, just 3 hours. The day of the concert, nothing. Then the day of the concert, 6 hours. I tried everything when I was younger and now. And I have discovered that sometimes less is more. Mm -hmm. Because we all need sometimes to digest what's happening. And my teacher used to say something very fun. When you're practicing the same day of the concert like crazy, he looked at me like saying, it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Of course, there's some things you can adjust or change or whatever, but for doing something meaningful, probably it's too late. <laughs> right. I was watching this video of you doing a master class about 14 years ago with Darren, Daniel Berenbaum. And you were, you were playing Beethoven, and he said something very interesting um, that, uh, sorry, um, speak not only with vowels, but with consonants. And I thought, wow, uh, was that, was that, I remember how, that how profound was that for you? Okay, it was beautiful because he was very happy about the sound that I was producing. Mm -hmm. It was very beautiful. Javier, thank you very much. Bravo. And I said, oh, my God. Well, good. And then he said, but, I said, oh my God. There's always a but. <laughs> After the but, and it was, it was amazing what he said. And I'm having this in mind, especially when I'm playing Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert, and all that composers means a lot. He was saying something very special, that, okay, your sound is so beautiful. I agree. I like it. But 
is this the sound that we need for Beethoven in this specific moment? Are you sure about that? Because your sound is full of vowels. Hey, yo, we, it's so French. But I need some more consonants. T, P, all that kind of sound. So I need that. Um, it was very special. And from that day, I have this in my mind when I'm playing, especially Beethoven, when you're playing in a forzato, and I usually say, maestro, there you have a consonant. You have consonant. So. <laughs> do, you, do you think that when you approach different pieces of different cultures, let's say, or countries, do you, do you look at their language to see how that would translate into the music? or Depending, because in this case, we don't have a letter. We don't have something to follow. Of course, what interests me most is the culture of Sanson in this case, mm -hmm. because it is something like Debussy or Ravel nothing to do is the touche or the approach we have to have with the sound or with the technique something similar to Debussy or Ravel nothing to do so they belong to the same culture but you don't need to be French to play that when people used to uh, used to tell me oh my god I love the Spanish music but you know I have the feeling I have to be Spanish and I said not at all you, for me, one of the most beautiful recordings that I have from Spanish music, of course, Alicia de la Rocha, the great Spanish pianist, but some others are from pianists that are not Spanish at all, because the, the music, uh, the language of the music is universal. You don't need to be German to play Beethoven, you don't need to be French to play Debussy, and of course, even if you think that in the Spanish music there is a lot of folklore, you don't need to be Spanish mm -hmm. to play good Spanish music because in the French and the German music, there is also folk music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you listen to when you're not practicing? Sorry? What do you listen to when you're not practicing? Usually, I'm a huge fan of flamenco, jazz. Um, of course, I listen to classical music, but I have to confess, not that much. Not that much. Because it's difficult for me to enjoy. Sometimes you are thinking about, oh my God, I should do this in a different way. And when I have to do a recording or something, I just listen one time when they prepare everything. When I say, okay, I cannot listen it anymore because listen to yourself is the most painful thing in your life. Because, oh my God, oh my God, why did you do this? Boof, impossible. So when I listen myself, immediately turn off the radio or whatever because I cannot stand myself. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and do, you, do you dance the flamenco? No, I don't dance. My wife does, but not me. Okay. I'm very clumsy. Not, not in the privacy of your own home? No do you want that I dance tonight after the concert? We could dance right now. I, I don't know how to dance flamenco, but sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one last question. You have an incredible touring schedule. You have a bazillion CDs that you've released. What's, your, what's next on your agenda? My next time, my next thing is a CD precisely with this conductor, so proves that we are getting along. We are doing a CD with pieces by Szymanowski. Mm. It's a composer, not very usual, but there is a beautiful piece that if you're curious, like I am, mm -hmm. the fourth symphony is for piano and orchestra, and it's a very beautiful piece. A very good friend of mine, very good musicologist, used to say it's very simplistic, but you know, Debussy plus Chopin equal Szymanowski. It's not that thin, it's something much more deeper. But this is the next project. And another one with Harmonia Mundi also doing the whole set of Goyescas by Granados. Oh, and it's a beautiful piece. So I'm enjoying a lot with these projects. Oh, yeah. wonderful. All right. 
I promised to have you back after 15 minutes because I think you have something to do at 8 o'clock. Um, so thank you very much. And thank we're you. It's really been a pleasure. Looking forward to the thank concert. you. See you soon. Okay. Oh. Turkey bellies. No, I'm, I'll stop making turkey jokes. Is, it, is anyone here following the World Cup too? Or, yeah, 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 there we go. <laughs> I'm dropping things. So I'll, I'll start talking a little bit today about Saint-Saëns. Um, there are two pieces on the program. It's a shorter concert because it's casual Fridays, so there's no intermission. After the concert, there's a very brief talk back on stage if you'd like to stay, or you could come in here Or, or it's downstairs, I can't remember where it is. There's the, uh, where you can mingle with the musicians, have a drink, chat with them, and, and, such, and so forth. But, so the first piece is the Camille Saint-Saëns, the Egyptian piano concerto. Uh, Saint-Saëns was born in 1835, and he began learning piano at two and a half. All right, to say that he had a remarkable musical aptitude would be a gross understatement, and he, Just to give you an example, he had memorized all of the Beethoven piano sonatas by the age of 10. Super duper. And he said of himself, I produce music as an apple tree produces apples, which I think is a beautiful way of saying everything was music. But he was also a multifaceted intellectual genius, in fact. So from an early age, he studied things like geology, archaeology, botany, and he was an expert at mathematics. Later in his life, in addition to composing and performing, and he also wrote musical criticism, he would hold discussions with Europe's finest scientists, and he wrote scholarly articles on acoustics and occult sciences and Roman theater decoration, you know, all sorts of things. He even wrote a philosophical work which spoke of science and art replacing religion. So he was a little bit pessimistic and, and atheistic in his ideas, and they almost foreshadowed the whole existentialism. Um, he wrote poetry and plays, and he was a member of the Astronomical Society in France. Um, he gave lectures on mirages, and he had a telescope that was made to his own specifications. And sometimes he would plan concerts to correspond to astronomical events. Um, so. That, I mean, just a really fascinating man. Um, in his music, Saint-Saëns really placed elegance and style and wit above all other qualities, believing that excessive uh, emotional expression was distasteful. So he was also a master of orchestration, much like his um, uh, fellow countryman Ravel, just brilliant um, in terms of the overall sense of proportion and refinement. I have a funny little story for you. Uh, Sanson traveled quite a bit, and mostly it was based around his touring schedule. And once when he was in Russia, he was performing a series of concerts in St. Petersburg, and there he met Tchaikovsky. So they were apparently, I'm guessing this was at some kind of party, um, they, Tchaikovsky and Sanson did an impromptu ballet dance while the piano was being played by Nikolai Rubinstein. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I love the story. 
1875, Saint-Saëns married a 19-year-old Marie-Laure Truffaut. So their marriage was not very successful, and it was a little bit tragic because they had two sons who eventually died within uh, six weeks of each other. One was only two and a half, and he fell out of a fourth-floor window, and the other was only six months old and died of a childhood malady. So Saint-Saëns blamed his wife, and three years later, while on holiday with her, he suddenly vanished, and then he never saw her again, but they eventually got legally separated. Um, he died in 1921 in Algiers of pneumonia at the age of 86, and he was composing and touring and performing up until the very end. So Sanson wrote five piano concertos, and he also premiered all of them. He said of this fifth concerto that it represented a sea voyage and was composed while he was in Luxor on vacation, where he often went during the winter. And this was one of the reasons that the concerto was also given the nickname, the Egyptian. So, as with most traditional piano concertos, there are three movements. The first one presents two contrasting themes. The opening is deceptively simple and very understated, with a simple theme that gets repeated and varied, and then the pianist eventually has these virtuosic runs that create sort of gentle, beautiful swells and tides of sound. Here's a, a, a little taste of that. It's music that makes you smile. It's gorgeous. Now, the second theme is it's a little bit more wistful and slightly melancholy. in a concerto is traditionally sort of slow and expressive, but Sanson changes things up a little here. He starts it with the bang, and the piano rushes in, and as um, Javier was mentioning, it's got this sort of Eastern-sounding sort of a sound to it. So it starts specifically, technically, if you want to know, with the harmonic minor scale, but it's in this second movement that you get these Javanese hints, and even there are some Spanish-y influences, and that's another reason that the concerto was nicknamed the Egyptian. So here's a little example of that. He sounds 
amazing live playing that just like, it feels like nothing. Now, this will lead to a more delicate and almost flute-like sounding piano line. Another reason for this nickname of the Egyptian is that it's in this movement that he quotes a Nubian song that he heard boatmen singing while he was floating down the Nile on a dahabiya, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a barge that um, you could find drawings of that were painted on the walls in the tombs of the ancient pharaohs. So it, it's... It, it feels so mystical, actually, and magical. So here's uh, that bit with the Nubian song. section, the piano and the orchestra produce sort of almost impressionistic sounds representing frogs and the crickets chirping in the Nile. And the sea and the water are depicted as well, not in a, you know, a Jaws kind of terrifying way, but more of, more, it's a little bit more brilliant at times, and then other times it's these lazy, undulating kind of waves. One of my favorite moments in this um, concerto is in this movement, and it's when the pianist all of a sudden starts playing really aggressively, and it sounds like popcorn. On um, and it, there's a complete change of timbre, and then the piano and the orchestra almost sound like an eastern koto or some kind of weird string instrument. Interestingly, weird string instrument. Oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> last movement, and it's a depiction of the serene voyage home from Egypt. So as Javier said, it's sort of the, the sound of the engine, possibly, or the ship's propellers, and there are moments where it's interrupted by a brief storm. You know, the orchestra comes in energetically, and the strings and winds sort of have this bustling theme. Mm -hmm. 
was sort of, he really epitomized what that French refined style was. He didn't really evolve his own distinctive musical style such as you know Debussy or something, but he really perfected it, and he actually defended sort of the French, French music against sort of the threatening uh, Wagnerian influences that were you know trying to make their way into into other um, countries. Now the second half of the concert features Shostakovich's monumental and powerful Fifth Symphony. At the beginning of the 19th century, Russia was a country economically devastated by the upheaval of the October 1917 revolution. So Shostakovich was born in 1906 in St. Petersburg, so he was 11 years old at the time of the revolution. And by the time he graduated at 21, he had become a loyal citizen and apparently an idealistic believer in the official objective of the Soviet state. Even though many of the leading musicians were leaving Russia, like Haifetz and Horowitz and Rachmaninoff, many remained there to continue their work under the new regime. And despite the sort of proletarian political climate, um, there still existed a, an atmosphere of tolerance and balance in the arts that was supporting both the traditionalists and the experimentalists. And this was under the art minister of Lenin. Many musicians thought this was a, a positive step in the direction that would give them a larger voice in control of their own art. Of course, this atmosphere of tolerance was more or less abolished under the rule of Joseph Stalin. He, he distrusted the West and wanted to centralize control over the arts. So a decree was issued, or a resolution was issued by the Central Communist Party, abolishing the various arts organizations and founding a union of Soviet composers. So by 1934, it was all about this policy of social realism with the single overriding objective being the optimistic depiction of the working class and the glorifying the revolution with glorifying the revolution with music that the masses could understand and enjoy. So this meant anything formalistic, dissonant, or experimental in any way got you a one-way ticket to Siberia, um, if you were lucky. Now, by the late 1920s, Shostakovich had become Russia's leading young composer who upheld those ideals of social realism. And he remained a hero of Soviet music, and even in 1957 was elected the secretary of the Union of Soviet Composers and received many of the country's highest awards. He is still, he was the leading composer and pianist of his generation, but even so, he was still denounced by the party during his lifetime. The first time was in 1934, when he had international success with his opera, The Lady Macbeth of the Minsk District. And the, the work incorporates elements of expressionism and verismo. So it tells the story of a lonely woman, 19th century Russia, who falls in love with one of her husband's employees and then is driven to murder. So the subject of the opera and the music were equally shocking. However, it ran for something like two years. It was hugely successful. Even Stalin eventually went to see it, but this is when the problem started. Stalin left the theater after the first act, and he said, this is degenerate music. 
So two days later, the official Communist Party newspaper condemned the work, saying it was chaos instead of music, and basically issued a threat to Shostakovich. He, of course, subsequently issued an apology and eventually was back in the party's good books. This is the sort of genesis for the symphony that you will hear this evening. Before we get to that, his second big denunciation was in 1948, where he and other composers, such as Prokofiev and Kachaturian, were accused of writing inappropriate and formalist music. So this was part of an ongoing anti-formalist campaign intended to root out all Western compositional influence and anything that was perceived as non-Russian. So this resulted in the Central Committee's decree demanding that composers only write proletarian music or music for the masses, and the accused composers were asked to come and make public apologies in front of the committee. Most of Shostakovich's works were banned, his family privileges were withdrawn, and he was amongst those who were dismissed from the conservatory altogether. So after the first instance of his opera, and at the height of Stalin's you know, artistic purges, his fifth symphony was a musical apology to the state's criticism of his opera, and it was musically much more traditional and contained. With the death of Stalin in 1953, the country moved into a period of sort of cultural thaw. And even with this loosening of control, Shostakovich died in Moscow in 1975 before he had a chance to see his music sort of rediscovered by the West and the disintegration of the Soviet state. He was a bit of a sad and bitter man. In his memories, memoirs, excuse me, he explains why he had to act and write the way he did, and even wrote about identifying with Shakespeare's character of Hamlet. And he, he writes, and I'm quoting, I'm particularly touched by Hamlet's conversation with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, when Hamlet says he's not a pipe and won't let people play him. A marvelous passage. It's easy for him. He's a prince after all. If he weren't, they'd play him so hard he wouldn't know what hit him. In our, in our society, creativity is, is taken for granted almost, and it's almost unfathomable, especially you know, as creators, to think of living under those kinds of restrictions. And I find it quite heartbreaking when I think about Shostakovich's own description of his symphonies, where he says, the majority of my symphonies are tombstones. Yeah. But this fifth symphony was composed in 1937, and it was the first work after this, the government's denunciation and it's his most often performed symphony. An unnamed journalist generously even subtitled the work for him, a Soviet artist's practical and creative reply to just criticism. Ha. Anyway. The symphony is very traditional in many ways. It has four movements, and there's no explicit program. Um, for Shostakovich, the official central idea of his fifth was man with all his sufferings, with the finale of this symphony resolving the tragic tense elements of the first movement on a joyful, optimistic level. So the, the first movement starts with this sort of very strenuous, sharply dotted idea in the low strings, and it actually keeps coming back, so I'll play you a little bit of that.
then this leads to the main theme that enters in the violins. So the first two movements are quite brash and raucous with a lot of brass instruments. The third movement is mostly for strings with beautiful, long, lush melodies that are based on that, this theme that we just heard from the first movement. The fourth and final movement picks up um, the march that was in, a march that came in in the first movement, and it's quite boisterous and a, a little aggressive. The end of the symphony has a bit of a militaristic snare drum that slowly leads to a more active sex, uh, section with constant and obsessively repeated notes in the strings. And the movement finishes with a really joyful D major um, tonality. Of course, there's been much debate about hidden and double meanings in his work. And the subtitle seems quite ironic because at the end of his life, he said of the apparently optimistic finale, it's as if someone was beating you with a stick and saying, your business is rejoicing, your business is rejoicing, your business is rejoicing. <laughs> all, of, all of Shostakovich's music has this dichotomy of dealing more globally with human nature as both horrific and cruel, yet loving and humorous. Um, the cellist Rostropovich described Shostakovich as a person who suffered for his whole country, and his music is not so much about the substance of himself, but rather the experience of his people. The conductor this evening is Gustavo Jimeno, the music director of both Luxembourg and the Toronto symphonies. And I'll again remind you, it's casual Friday, so there are drinks after with the musicians. There's no intermission. There's a very brief talk back on stage um, following the concert, just 10 minutes. Um, we, we won't be taking questions, unfortunately, but you'll get a chance to hear what the, uh, David Howard, the bass clarinetist from the LA Phil, and the conductor will have to say. And since it's Thanksgiving, I just want to say how thankful I am that we're all here together to celebrate music live again and have enjoyed the concert. Thanks.